Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you Um, know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hey, Guy. How you doing? I'm good. I'm very excited about today. Obviously, absolute childhood hero of mine uh, because it's someone who, one of the first people where you heard on the radio, where you heard this bass and it sounded amazing and you thought, I could do that. That's right. And, and you know, that bass sound from the Stranglers, you know, you can... What, who was first? Was it was it him or was it uh, Peter Hook? It was him. I mean, he was, or certainly he was the first one on the radio. Hooky was a different thing. I think it was, um, there was a, you know, Hooky was someone who was kind of finding his way and making something up as he went along. Whereas JJ had that incredibly, it was so assured. And, you know, just, the, I mean, I remember the first thing I heard was Peaches and it was just, it was just bang, you know. Did you ever see the Stranglers? I did, yeah, I did. Um, I can't remember where. Yeah, I saw them a couple of times. I do remember seeing them at the Roundhouse. They did a famous sort of stint at the Roundhouse. Um, and uh, quite frightening, quite frightening band. That was their but, thing, though, wasn't it? Anyway, so I'm a bit frightened now, is what I'm trying to say. And I'm you should be, because he's an eighth down, whatever, sort of sort eighth, of lethal eighth, weapon qualified eighth, karate guy. An eighth desperate Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be terrified of him as well. Will you hold my hand like a Zoom hand kind of thing yes, as we go? Into yes. This? Welcome to the Rock on Turf. <laughs> Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hi, JJ. Hi, introduce yourselves. I'm Guy Pratt. No, we've met many years ago. We, yeah, we must have met because, of course, we both have a very long association with the good days, with Mark and the family. That's right. I met you just outside... Um, the uh, East-West ones. Oh, well, well remembered. I'm Gary. We've never met JJ, I don't think. Hi, Gary. Yes, we have. When? Where? Um, your band um, were 
playing a CBS thing. In the 80s? It would have been the 80s, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Terrifying memory you have there, JJ. Yeah, no, I've done everything <laughs> possible to, to eradicate it, and it, it's still there. We share the same PR, because you're, you're at Alan Edwards. That's what I'm right now, right now, right now, yeah, yeah. Alan's just been working on my project and we go back a, lo a long way. But I did notice that Alan's name actually popped up. We'll talk about it later on some mad trip to Amsterdam. You yeah, yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there because that's right at the beginning. OK. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Late 77. Yeah. So first of all, we just, you know, our sympathies and condolences to uh, about Dave and yeah. to his family to and to you guys. Yeah. I don't know about you, but... Um... We uh, got on so well, the whole band, for many years. And Dave and I go back 45 years. So it's, a, you know, as, as colleague and friend. Mm. And then we even lived at my house for nine months until I told him to fuck off. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was a very special guy. Yeah. Well, you did an album together, didn't you? You did The Fire and Water. Yeah, we did. Well, we did... Um, well, I did both. <laughs> all the other things. We, yeah, yeah. We did... Uh, yeah, he was... Um, You'd call, I think in the old days, you'd call them eccentric, and now you'd say autistic. So he was right, really yeah. high-functioning um, autist. And uh, so if you asked him a question, um, he wouldn't have the filters to realise that an hour later, your eyes are glazed over because he was <laughs> answering the question properly. <laughs> he was arpeggiatingly autistic, I think you might call him. <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, taken by COVID, we, we speak... A, to everyone we've had on in the last year you know one of the first few things we talk about is what the how things have been for them and and i have to say you're the first time that it, it, we've spoken to any musician where it's hit them personally yeah. and taken away a member of their band and such an important member of the band but there is a legacy isn't there because you'd already recorded some of the records yeah we'd recorded about 90 percent of this record um before the lockdown and then he got taken ill but he had you know as i know it's a cliche now but he did have underlying health problems and how how is the record? What are you excited about this? We haven't Guy and I haven't had the opportunity. No, to we haven't, no. Well, I've heard a couple of the tracks, it's, um, if, including it's, Mad Stuart Pierce. Can ask you, yeah. I, I, so have you seen it, Guy? No, yeah. I'm sorry. So they've got Stuart. I, I take you know. I take it. It's it, it it's it's Baz's Bazu singing right on on it. Is it on the recording? Yeah, but Stuart the recording. It's Stuart Pierce, the famous England footballer, with all his angst and anger. A famous Stranglers fan marching towards the camera intimidatingly, uh, miming to the track. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, he's he's. <laughs> it was well directed. I'm sure. He's uh, basically an old mate and. Um, I was thinking whether it should be Stuart or um, Eric Cantona. Oh, yes. Do you know him? No, but I was meant to... He, <laughs> he's preparing an album at the moment, and he lives in Lisbon. So I was invited to Lisbon so I could work with him. And it was just too much of a faff from where I live, um, which is just, um, I don't know, 40 minutes from Nice to get to Lisbon. It was, you know, it was right in the middle of the lockdown. And so I turned him down. So when I, I mentioned that, would he consider, um, you know, a, a role in this video? Um, he turned me down. And of course, it was it was obvious that it should be Stuart and not Eric. I love that you call him Eric, which of course you can because you're French. So I am French. Yeah, I think the, the giveaway is in the name. <laughs> <laughs> Just t tell us about how that album, uh, this album, has uh, has developed. Then 
for you, especially obviously with 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 Dave going in the middle of it? Well, uh, <laughs> we started writing it nine years ago. Um, the opening track is a track called Water, which is about the Arab Spring. You know, uh, water is a metaphor for freedom and uh, and democracy. But um, so we started that nine years ago. But because you know, you're a musician and you've got demand. If there's you know people really want to see you and pay money to see you, uh, you that's what you live for. Um, so for the eight, eight, nine years following the writing the first track, we've been busy. And I'm, you know, I've, so I've got about 350 ideas, but not one of them uh, able to be completed until we could collect our thoughts and get together. So then the, the opportunity came. But um, yeah, so <laughs> he was with us for 90% of the recordings. And of course, there's a track which is dedicated to him which there's no keyboard on yet, obviously. But how did you finish the... Well, uh, um, there is, we, do, we do have the technology now. Um, so I found in my little village in Provence, um, I found a studio, a geek with a studio, did a few vocals there, sent them to our studio in the West Country. Um, they were either approved or told, I was told to reconsider them. And we finished it that way. I mean, all the instrumental parts were done. On behalf of myself... And a whole generation of bass players. Just got to say that the first time I heard, you know, when you when you appeared with the Stranglers, it was seismic, just absolutely seismic. The idea with it was with you and Simo. With I mean, with Simo, it was just it was the look. It was the idea that the coolest guy in the band could be the bass player. We'd never seen that. And with you, it was the look and that sound, <laughs> which was you know. I mean, I remember the first time I heard Peaches. I remember where I was. I remember everything. It was like it's such a game changer, especially because I remember hearing it, and thinking I could play that. The guy to remember where he was at any given time was in those days was pretty extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is the what is the secret? Come on, let it out. Well, Peaches was a complete fluke and accident because um, we our first record company was called Safari Records and it was a reggae, oh, yeah. it was a reggae label based in Chiswick. They never did anything for us, but once one day the boss uh, Reg McLean, I think it was called, uh, he phoned us up and said, uh, "Look, I need." Uh, You've got a little PA, haven't you? We had a little 500, 600 watt uh, H&H piled up PA. And he said, could you help augment uh, a, another PA um, uh, on the weekend? And we said, yeah, sure, you know, making 20 quid. So Hugh and I turned up and it was something called a sound system. I've never encountered oh, right, it. Right. And it was all bass speakers all around this, um, this hall in Acton. And suddenly realised we, we, Hugh and I were the only uh, white people there, and um, so th- th- we we stuck our PA, attached it to their PA, and they had um, you know, they were sort of scats in, you know, toasting, toasting, uh, uh, and with de- delays, you know, when copycat delays, um, which make a you know snare go. And anyway, at one point, once we'd installed our PA with theirs, connected it to theirs. They um, had a spliff. They were passing this big spliff, and Hugh and I sort of went in the queues, so hoping. And the spliff just went right past our face. <laughs> <laughs> ignored us totally, but we made twenty quid from it anyway. But anyway, um, I, I heard all this bass and a bit of drums uh, and delays, and I thought this is fantastic. So the next day, um, I just came out with those three notes. Da, da, da. You know, because I'd heard that all night long, you know. Oh, right, right. This, uh, this uh, sound system. 
wasn't there something about your your sound that was uh, uh, akin to Dave Davis? Well, isn't it? Sorry, guy. You, you yeah, no, because I was about to say something. Because a few uh, years ago, I did uh, I played on a track for They Might Be Giants. Um, it's called I've Got a Fang. <laughs> And it was Langer and when Stanley were producing. Oh, right. And the guy said to me, would be really great if we could get like a piece, like a, a Strangler's JJ Burnell sound. And Alan Wynn Stanley said, well, for that, we need to get a high watt and we need to slash the speaker cones. And they said, are you sure that's how they did it? He <laughs> said, I engineered it. He did. He, did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he engineered uh, the first few albums with uh, yeah. Martin, Martin, Martin Russian. Martin, yeah. That's right. Well, uh, Ian, uh, we went back uh, some time with Ian when we were trying to do um, demos way, way back in 1974, 75. Uh, we found his studio, TW Studios in uh, Fulham Palace Road, and he was the engineer there. So, right. we, you know, we kept in touch with him. How did the slash come yeah. about? That's what I'm, I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah. I want to picture the slash. Because, I mean, you know, there seems to be a fight between Ray and Dave Davis about who That's actually yeah. did how and it if was it was done. knitting needles or razor blades, they used to slash the cones. Well, it wasn't done on purpose. It was uh, we, <laughs> we didn't know anything about it until we'd done half the sessions for those first few albums because we did uh, Rattus, Norvegicus, and No More Heroes in the, in the same session. Because, like any young band, uh, you start out and you're accumulating material, you know. So uh, you haven't had a chance to record it. So we had two albums worth of material when we signed up eventually. So um, we, uh, after halfway through the sessions, we were listening to the sound and, and Martin was quite excited about the sound. Uh, but one of our crew um, sort of stripped the speakers uh, because there was something not right and found there was a slash in the speaker. So it wasn't done on, on ah. the sound. It was an accident. You're talking about being back in 74, because what's the extraordinary is you started and you were kind of, you're obviously at the more aggressive end of the pub rock movement, and yet that seamlessly flowed into punk. Yeah, the, the, well, the only circuit in those days was the pub rock. Yeah, um, that was the you know the, the base uh, circuit, and uh, obviously uh, that's what it's. It's been a great loss actually to British musicians not to have that to to develop their um, their skill and also to be able to front uh, in front you know, in front a band, you know. That's how I started doing pub rocks in the, in the early fantastic. 70s. It was a fantastic circuit. And then the next uh, level up was the college circuit, if you could yeah, make, yeah. break into that. So, um, yeah, we, we were playing, uh, trying to play the pubs, um, although we had we had so, such shit equipment, it was always packing up on us and we were getting asked to leave pubs by landlords. Uh, one time... The, the publican really didn't want us on. So he, he switched our power off. We put the plug back in. He switched it off. We put it back in. He called the police. And that was entertaining to the punters. You know, there was about you know, <laughs> seeing this standoff, you know. We phoned up again, the pub. And uh, it was a bit like, you know, what kind of music do you play? Country uh, or Western, you know. So, uh, yeah, yeah, both yeah. kinds, yeah. yeah both <laughs> and, Country, uh, so we, we changed our name. So we, we were changing our name uh, on a regular basis. And we, what names, what, what were some of the names? Oil and the Slicks, um, the Shakespeare's, uh, uh, loads of different names, anything but... Um, you know, the name that we'd been thrown out of that pub a month previously, <laughs> you know. But the, the Stranglers, did that come as a sort of homage to the scene of what was going on at the time? No. Or was that something that came anyway? It, um, there was a, a movie with um, Tony Curtis called The Boston Strangler. And after one of these, another disastrous night where people would 
trying to bottle us off or we were trying to, um, you know, we weren't intentionally trying to piss people off, but uh, it was a, a disastrous night again. And then um, Hugh and I had see, just gone to see the Boston Strangler and for some reason I said, ah, the Stranglers have done it again. And uh, we said, oh, well, that's a name, that's a memorable name. That's the sort of kind of name which will stick in your throat. And uh, so, <laughs> so uh, it, it stuck. And I think ah. it might have been originally the Guildford Stranglers. And then we just- oh, that's right. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was originally, wasn't it? Guildford. But unfortunately, yeah, Guildford's a bit too genteel a name, isn't it? I remember being around <laughs> at the time in a, in, a, in a sort of pre, in a band before whatever the band was that I ended up in. And um, <laughs> spandex. And the agent, the agent, there was this agency called Albion Music. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. And right. if you didn't sign to Albion, you were nobody. They had the pub circuit sewn they up. Had so a, they, they did have a bit of a, well, they had um, resident, we, I mean, we were signed up to Albion eventually, and they had uh, the Nashville Rooms, the Red Cow, um, uh, and they had a, an inn with the Houghton Anchor. And uh, Di Davis, our manager, uh, who, who was one of the partners of Albion Music, he had um, previously been involved with New, you, the New York Dolls with uh, Malcolm McLaren. What was odd about your group, but what I admired, and I came to see you, actually, I came to see you at the, I, I saw you a couple of times, but I definitely remember the Roundhouse very clearly, one just before Christmas, it could have been November or something, 77. Yes. Uh, I remember, I remember because I love Christmas. <laughs> I got my first guitar bought for me for Christmas. And I remember Hugh saying something horrid about Christmas <laughs> in the stage because punks weren't allowed to like it. <laughs> but, um, but, but what was extraordinary about your group was the musicality. Because, you know, where you got someone else thrashing away at a guitar, and that was the main part of what punk sound was, you sort of had that role as a playing on the eights in the bass. But this great sort of... I mean, I'm going to use that word. We use it at least once on every uh, podcast. Go for it. Prog-style keyboards yes, going on. Yes, yes. Takes yeah. cover, takes cover. Sort of Rick Wakeman-like arpeggios that were everywhere. And it was totally unique and a very, you know, kind of... Well, it was kind style. of... Um, you know, it's like, you know, every time there's a new orthodoxy, they, you know, throw the, the baby out with the bathwater, you know, so it's year zero. And having a keyboard kind of rankled but plus having a synthesizer in the band was kind of heresy, you know. Not to mention a beard and a moustache. That's right. You were skating on thin ice, mate. You yeah, were... but you know what? Well, I can skate on thin ice. <laughs> and, uh, and no one was going to bother me. Didn't you open for the Ramones at the sort of seminal we will, um, roundhouse we'll, gig? First of all, in 76, for some reason, uh, when Patty Smith first came to Europe uh, and to the UK, we were chosen as, it was selected to be um, what you call the support act. So we played with Patti Smith a few times and then they were celebrating the American bicentenary from when, uh, independence right. from England, um, 1776 to, because oh, that was the Boston Tea Party, wasn't it? And um, to uh, 1976. Yeah, I remember it. There were well. three. T- uh, there were three uh, cities represented, and I, I think it was a marketing ploy because uh, they top of the bill with the flaming groovies representing San Francisco, and Sa- San Francisco didn't fucking exist in seventeen seventy. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a village, a little Hispanic village. I take your word for that. Um, and uh, they hadn't got that far. No, yeah. <laughs> they had not. And then uh, representing New York with the Ramones, uh, second on the bill, and bottom of the bill representing London. 
um, the poor cousins were the stranglers. Well, that's well, that's so you were literally flying the flag. That's such a weird, weird thing for a load of punks to be involved in an incredibly nationalistic I mean, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so much to unpack there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think what's what's worth unpacking is is the fact that I, I mean, you know, now I know more about music. I didn't probably get it then. But what I associate you guys closer with was more of the East Coast New York punk sound. Yeah. Uh, and, and even before that, garage sound, you know, there's because uh, you can hear, you know, bands like Music Machine and, 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 uh, and Question Mark and the Mysterians and, and stuff like that inside your music. Well, yeah. But it was more like a Tom Verlaine, Richard Hell kind of vibe from, from, from uh, Hugh. Well, I, th I think we came from four different backgrounds at the time. Um, Jet was a jazz drummer originally, and so it was it was quite something to get him to hit the snare on the offbeat a bit harder. Um, and Dave, yeah, Dave was a prog rocker, really. Um, Hugh liked all the Velvet Underground stuff, and he, you know, Hugh had been a university student visiting, you know, watching Captain Beefheart in Copenhagen because he did his postgraduate stuff in... Um, in Sweden. So, and me, I was a classical guitarist originally. That's what I want to talk to you about. Yeah. I mean, how advanced as a classical guitarist were you? I only got to grade six. Because a lot of your stuff, especially on later things, it gets really quite complex. And and you can hear bark in it. Yeah. Why not? Bark cello. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it adds uh, adds a bit more to the uh, to the recipe, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and Hugh was much more... He, I mean, Hugh educated me in... Beefheart and Velvet Underground, all that kind of stuff. The only sort of bands I'd really heard up till then was, um, well, my parents were in, in the restaurant business. My dad was a, a French chef, mum was front of house, and we lived in- What a, was the restaurant? Uh, La Chaumière, in the, or the, the Little Thatch in Godalming. That's, uh, I went to school in Guildford, and, uh, and Godalming is just south of Guildford. And there was a pub there, playing blues on a Sunday night called the Gin Mill. It was the Angel Pub in Godalming, and it was called, the club was the Gin Mill Club. And I saw bands, um, you, you might have heard of them, um, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, before they had their first record. No, no, I never, no, it's not ringing and, a bell. Uh, they were fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, bands like Free, before they were, I think they were called Black Cat Bones. Oh, wow. Wow, I didn't know they were called that. And um, um, they were a blues band. Were they a blues band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Free, okay. were, uh, Free were a blues band. Uh, they were just playing the blues circuit. Um, right. The uh, guys like, have you heard of Ainsley Dunbar? Yeah, of course. Of course. Oh, yeah. He played, played with Bowie as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Lou Reed, I think, on Berlin, he was. He does that very long. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, he had a band called Retaliation because he had previously been in John Mayall's Blues Breakers. There was another guy called Keith Keith Hartley's. Oh, right. He was a drummer as well. Uh, there were all these bands playing um, McKenna Mendelssohn Mainline Blues Band. And every Sunday you'd see these bands play, you know, roll up and play in front of about 50 people. And I was 14 or 15. I'd get smuggled in by the older uh, boys who let me into the back of the pub. And it was a fantastic education. Because, of course, Hugh's first band was with Richard Thompson. That's right, at school. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Emil and the Detectives, I think it was called. Yeah. Oh, good night. But I can see a connection between those two. There's a sort of wry cynicism about life, a kind of educated uh, side-eye <laughs> that, that goes on in their, in their lyrics, you know, and in their, and in their sensibility to, to music. How did you end up? 
not being the guitar player though is is it was it one of those oh god there's already a guitar player i'm gonna to have to play the bass this is a really boring story that's what we thrive on <laughs> yeah yeah it's really boring yeah. so i'll tell you all of it <laughs> get your pillows ready uh my only ambition at the time was um to get to japan and get my black belt yeah uh, and i was saving up about five or a week from a, a 20 pound a week wage yeah, Freddie Laker didn't do Tokyo, did he? <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> and he got nobbled by the Yanks going to New York. Yeah. Um, so I, I, um, I would, I, I was a member of a karate club in Kingston upon Thames. So I would um, use my van to go up and down the A3. And one day, this, and I had really short hair, cropped hair in those days, and often got mistaken for a, a squaddy because around Guildford you've got all the shop. Oh right, lot of squaddies and or a cop, you know, because or Doctor Martin's in a short cropped hair. Um, and I stopped for a hitchhiker, and this guy was uh, had long hair, and um, I, gave, I gave him lift to Guildford. And it turned out he was a, a, an American draft dodger who'd gone to Sweden, as a lot of them did, and he um, he formed a band in Sweden, which included Hugh, who was doing his research there, uh, this American draft dodger, a Swedish bass player, and had come to England and found a drummer, namely Jet, who'd invited them to um, stay and live in his off-licence in Guildford. So <laughs> they were living above this off-licence in Guildford. I dropped the, the hitchhiker off and he invited me upstairs to meet the rest of the band. So I think they offered me a beer or something. I can't remember. And I do, I, I must have given my address to Hugh because two weeks later, um, I never went out. I was just saving my money, playing guitar at home. And this someone knocked on my bedsit door. Um, and it was him. It was Hugh. And, and he looked distraught because he said, they, they've all gone. They've left me and gone back to gone back to Sweden. They couldn't hack it. I'm left here with this um, this bloke, this drummer. Um, and he saw I had a guitar. So we started chatting and um, he said, uh, the bass player's left his bass here. He didn't take it back to Sweden with him. It's a 1964 Fender P, it turned out. Oh, wow. A green one. So uh, he said... Do you fancy playing with us? So I jet myself and Hugh started playing. And I turned up after a karate tournament with my hand in a sling. It was quite funny. My first rehearsal with early stranglers. That's, I mean, God, that isn't boring. That's, that's, a, that's a brilliant is, story. And it's also the birth of, of a band that was going to go on and have, I don't know, 10 top 10 records, you know, <laughs> or whatever you had. Um, but what I, I, I want to know who the bass player was. Was that was like Jonas Helborg or some legendary <laughs> Swedish bass player? <laughs> Went on but, to join Mahavishnu or, you know. Yeah. Jet was, he's an interesting character, Jet Black, obviously. You know, uh, he's a lot older than you. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Had a fleet he, of ice cream he, vans. He had right. a fleet of ice cream vans. <laughs> <laughs> Love he had a business called the Wine Centre Guildford. He said he would um, uh, mail a mail order uh, wine kits, you know, because the, the British like to make wine from anything but grapes, you know. <laughs> you British. Oh, God, yeah, just leave it, leave it in the airing cupboard next to the homebrew lager kit from yeah, Boots. That's right, so. that's right. <laughs> uh, and so he had this off-licence. He had um, the Wine Centre Guildford uh, mail order wine, and... Um, he had a couple of ice cream vans, which he, uh, we once we moved in with him, um, we had to service the um, the, the, the um, ice cream loving 
people of Surrey. <laughs> you sold ice cream? Hugh and I were um, I opening the, the, the laps of the ice cream van, which eventually became our transport, actually. Yeah. And we'd sell ice creams at the um, Devil's Punch Bowl. I, I love the idea of this ice cream van arriving and the music playing on the top, tinkling away, is get a grip on yourself. <laughs> 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 uh, if only. Yeah. Yeah. No, no more 99s. <laughs> Ratica is, is a great album to this day. I mean, it's it's still one of the most powerful opening albums that have, I think a band from that oh, period. Thank you. I mean, it, you know, um, the uh, the lucky thing with uh, young when you when you start out, you don't normally get a, a deal straight away, so you accumulate material and you hone it. You know, you hone it uh, wherever you can. You play it all the time. So when it came to actually recording it, that the, the pieces were in the right arrangements. They were the right tempos we could play them uh, blindfold almost you know uh, two three years down the down the line you know yeah saying that but what's extraordinary i mean let's stay on rational vegetables but rather than having the difficult second album you did three like within a year well the first, the first two were recorded in the same session because that was the accumulation right, right. of the material so um, it was just the arbitrary what was left off ratus and what was on the next one six months later no more heroes and then yeah the next uh that winter, we did uh, an album called Black and White. That's so, yeah, it was three in, uh, it was three in uh, less than 18 months, yeah. How was the writing process on those records? Well, it was always Hugh and myself. You know, either I would have an idea or Hugh would have an idea. And we, we thought up an idea. Another idea was to include the others in everything, uh, royalty-wise. Because, you know, you start out as mates, don't you? There's a, a dynamic is quite equal. Uh, but I've I've noticed um, with bands and uh, in the past, you know, one person has a bit more talent for songwriting, so they get the royalties. The the dynamic changes, doesn't it? Uh, people get a bit jealous or a bit. Uh, you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you might be talking to the right guy here. I spent six weeks in court. Yeah, you know, and so you know, and, and to avoid that, we made everyone equal, though they were really. You know, two songwriters, but I, I always thought as soon as um, Jet would put his feel on a, on a piece, uh, he had a share of it. So instead of being a multi multi millionaire now, I'm just a millionaire uh, because <laughs> I shared. We shared, but you share you share the uh, the failures as well together. You know, everyone's invested much more than if you've got one songwriter who gets the royalties and more attention, and it creates resentment. Over time, it will but, but As did, you well know, Mr. Kemp. But I just want to jump ahead slightly on, on stay on that subject. Was that resentment part of the reason that Hugh left in the end? No, no, because, uh, well, because he wanted to uh, a bigger share of stuff. No, no. Well, whatever, he wanted more recognition. Let's yeah, say well, I think he had the recognition, but yeah. I, um, uh, he, he, I, I think... Uh, he he listened to sirens, I think. You know, when you when you because he was the front man, he did the talking, he did uh, two thirds of the lead vocals, um, and he listened to sirens, and things started. You know, he suddenly got his own lawyer, he got um, a stylist, and he was listening to people. I, I suspect they said, you know, you are the stranglers, and you don't need these others, and you know, there might be a few. Persons. It's you, babe. It's you, babe. You carry them. You carry them. It's you, babe. So, and you know, you <laughs> must have seen Sting had you know had done the thing, and he he got a theatre agent, and you know, so yeah, probably thought you know, strangers have come to the end of the road, and um, I, I I need to move on. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Yeah. This is the thing that when you had your first big success, you went and did a little thank you tour of the pubs that you came from. Yes, we I love that. Well, yeah, that's like, so great. That was our roots, you know. And it's um, it's a shame that that circuits hardly exists now. No, but yeah, because I mean, so many bands like yourself, like The Police and I, Jam, and I, I, I saw all of them for the first time down at the Hope and Anchor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hope and Anchor was uh, a great place. Oh, Hope and Anchor. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, it's one of those things, isn't it? When you're on that circuit, because my first band was this sort of mod band, mod revival band in '79, and and there's that thing of you play the Hope and Anchor and you go, oh my god, we've made it. You. Hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. I absolutely remember um, <laughs> driving at what well, we were driving our ice cream van after a gig in <laughs> in um, it, somewhere in London, and we passed. Uh, we drove down um, Upper Street, and that night we saw um, Kilman and the High Roads uh, pushing their equipment out of the you know the um, the beer uh, the beer oh, the beer shoot yeah shoot yeah, and we said. One day that will be us. It really was. It's what we all aimed for. Yeah. And a little advert in the back of the ah, NME. If you can see your name printed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, next to someone you'd heard of. Somewhere, somewhere on the list. Like, you know, like, you oh know, my God. You know, X-ray specs are on the list with us. I saw uh, Jet was our archivist and... Um, I happened to be looking through some of the early stuff, the you know, press cuttings, you know, and 
you know, we didn't get any reviews or anything, but we were listed in the Hope and Anchor listings. And one That's week, right. That, that was a such a thing. Dire just, Straits. Yeah. There's Dire Straits. There's Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets. There's XTC, Rugulator, The Stranglers. Yeah, I mean... I still have the cuttings of some of those from my old bands and when we were called the makers originally, but it leads, it leads me on to, uh, to, to talking about the Torrington. Yeah. The Torrington. And when you met the Finchley boys, because ah. the Finchley boys story, which I, 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 I did, I did read about yesterday. That's their extraordinary bunch. Do, can you tell us a bit? Yeah. Um, well, it was, um, I think summer 76, uh, the whole world seemed to be aware of something happening around starting in London, with the pistols and, and lots of other bands. It was a synchronicity. We we had, you know, I don't know if we by then we'd played with the, uh, the Ramones yet, but so there was this bunch of kids from uh, North London and a really multi-ethnic uh, group of kids who'd grown up on the estates up there in Finchley. They'd tried out um, a few bands. I know they jumped up on stage for the Damned and Damned had run off. Um, and... Uh, they did the same to us. And unfortunately for them, we never ran off because we were seasoned campaigners by then, you know. Uh, and then we started taking the piss out of them. Uh, we, did a, a, we used to do a song called Tits. Completely, All right, yeah, yeah. completely politically incorrect now, uh, but I don't care. Uh, uh, She's got 36, 24, 36 hips. That was the size of her tits. Boom. And it was taking the piss out of ourselves. Yeah. Oh, Cole Porter standard. Sim- simpler times. Yeah. Simpler times. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so they they decided that we were going to be their band. And suddenly they we had um, we had our private army. And they'd follow us all over the country initially and then start they started going abroad with us and um, there was a hardcore of about 15, but they could muster up about 300 Finchley boys at one point. They did. One was called Dagenham Dave, wasn't it? No, uh, Dagenham Dave was, he, he became a mate of theirs, but he was our very first fan. And uh, he, uh, he, he introduced us to all kinds of stuff. He, then we were playing at the Hundred Club one time, and um, he came along. And the, by then, the Finchley boys had, were installed as our security unit, and he didn't like that. And he attacked them all and got beaten the shit out of um, uh, one bloke against I don't know how many Finchley boys. And he disappeared for a few weeks, and then he reappeared, and they were all matey. And and then he, I think he, he just committed suicide. Dived off um, uh, London Bridge. Oh dear! A, a really, really a down, down a, a part to the story, really. Yeah. Uh, what was so? Yeah. Well, while on the subject of violence, uh, <laughs> didn't you? You had a dust up with Simonon, didn't you? Was that at Dingwalls or was that the? It was at Dingwalls. Well, it was after yeah. one of the Ramones gigs. And what was that about? Uh, it, was string, it was a string gauges. You couldn't agree on. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't drink in those days. Um, and after the gig, uh, Dagnan Dave actually had made me drink a few glasses of wine. So I was going through the really crowded, um, uh, it was packed, it was packed, um, uh, Dingles. And um, I passed Paul and Stephen Paul from Pistols and Paul Simonon. They all had a pint uh, there. And just as I walked past um, Paul Simonon, 
and you know we we all knew each other um you know because we were only going we were going frequenting the same places really um he had this tick of going spitting he went just as i walked past so i took offense and i punched him and he he and, and it spilled the pints of steve uh, jones and, and Paul Cook as well. And so everyone piled in on top of everyone. And of course, the bouncers there were huge. <laughs> so suddenly we found ourselves in the courtyard um, and facing each other. And suddenly there was a, a whole line, you know, the, there was um, Chrissy Hine, there was uh, the Pistols, um, some of the Clash. Um, Celebrity deathmatch. And, and, um, <laughs> not the face, not the face. And me and Paul, <laughs> nose to nose, and it was, uh, it was handbags. But, um, and it kind of created a bit of a, it polarised opinion. <laughs> so did you, after a few glasses of wine, did you, did you still have your karate chops? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's chops, as in chops, not yeah. chops. Yeah. <laughs> I like this. This is this is that little chapter that we're on is interesting. We'll pursue it further because there's the famous uh, journalist, John Savage. He's wrote written. Oh, English yes. And, and, and that you had a little bit of one with him as well, didn't you, JJ? Yeah, I can't remember why I was pissed off with him, but I was looking for him um, you know, um, all over London and I found him, the Red Cow, the soft boys were playing. Um, he uh, he was in a crowd, in, which included our A&R man, Andrew Lauder, who had signed us up. Oh, um, right. Uh, Nick, uh, Lowe. Nick Lowe. Lowe. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Um, senior moment there. Uh, Nick Lowe, um, Andrew, Andrew uh, Riviera, Jake Rivera, um, and who else? John Savage. And I found him and someone pointed up to him. So I told him that he was an enemy of my revolution. Um, he, he slapped me. I chucked a, a glass of Coca Cola over him. He tried slapping me, which was an excuse for me to try to slap him a bit more and um and then i got thrown out <laughs> end of story you are the enemy of my revolution but there was so much grief amongst all the punk bands didn't they? They, they says that things like when when you get involved in serious left-wing politics there's like the the people you hate more than anyone are the other left-wing politics organizations <laughs> yeah 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 but 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 continuing this this theme that because you were apparently you were banned from London at one point yeah. as a band, yeah, well, it was but the, also yeah. you? But then you were thrown in jail in Nice for a riot. Yeah, uh, well, we come on, come spent on. Quite a few nights in the cells, uh, <clears throat> one reason or another. Um, but that was a bit of a piss off the Nice thing, especially for Hughes. He'd just come out a few months in Pentonville, um, several months prior to that, and then we got involved in this political thing, which we were oh, yeah, yeah, I remember unaware of. Um, uh, he got busted um, at the police roadblock and he, I think they found every chemical <laughs> under the sun on him. So he got busted. Uh, always the sun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I always remember the pictures of him coming out of jail with this sort of very dutiful Hazel O'Connor. That's right. Wasn't That's it? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and then a few months later, we just got in, embroiled in this political situation, not, none of our doing, but it was... We ended up at uh, Nice University and didn't realise that all the students in France were on strike. And it was a glass amphitheatre and um, it just it just kicked off. Were well, you held responsible? Um, well, according to the French, I was because um, the others... Because you're French. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> no, the, I got... Um, uh, 
the others got just under a year suspended, which meant that uh, when there was an amnesty, occasionally there's an amnesty, it was cleared. But I was given a year and a day, so my amnesty was, I was never oh. amnested. And I, I remember getting, um, was it, it might have been sounds or was it NME that, yeah, which again, <laughs> didn't seem to be really in keeping with the general tenor. So right, you, right. When you did, a, you did a nude centrefold. Yeah, well, we <laughs> in an incredibly chintzy room. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but they broke the deal because um, we were being accused of being sexist, uh, fascist, misogynist, and, and everything East at the time. And um, so they thought it would be a good wheeze for me to send myself up as a male chauvinist, sexist thing. And I agreed uh, on the condition that there was a book and um, in the double page spread of the enemy. The book um, was Women in Modern Society, but it was blurred out. <laughs> but you can still see oh. and, uh, and, yeah, and they gave me the title Stud of the Year, which I, which was, I was very grateful for. Uh, I think what people sometimes missed and what I think is in your music and is the, there's a sense of humour in, uh, you know, we meant, I mentioned irony a, a, a while ago, but yeah. there is a sense of humour. I mean, and... Yeah, and, and and, you know, I, so, you know, it, it just what you were making was social comments as well. But wasn't there some some guy used to have Johnny Rubbish brought on in a oh, dustbin? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds hilarious. What is that? He was a bloke from Finchley, thought he was a stand-up comedian. Um, he, he released a single, Mud on My Tire, um, which was a send-up of uh, Mull of Kentucky. Uh, and... <laughs> He's the new, by the way, he's the new leader of Afghanistan, is he? Mullah Kintyre. Kintyre. And uh, he would, uh, he, he thought he would be a stand-up comedian. Uh, so he, we'd bring him on stage at the Roundhouse, for instance, in a dustbin. And it was just as well he came in in a dustbin because he was being spat. I mean, there was spat, spat, spat on so much that he couldn't really come out of the dustbin. So he told us jokes from inside the, you know, a plastic, plastic bin. But you had strippers as well, didn't you? Or was that just one gig? Was that the one? Was that Battersea well, or somewhere? By um, by then, um, I had a girlfriend uh, who had a flat in Acton, and she shared the flat with a girl called Lynn, who was a stripper. Um, and after the accusations of the Stranglers being sexist and and um, chauvinist, it was getting a bit wearing and. Um, I mean, you know, Rough Trade, for instance, wouldn't stop the Stranglers because we were chauvinist pigs. So um, she, the stripper Lynn, uh, she said, I'm going to show these guys um, who's in control of their body. So with the release in 1978 of uh, Black and White, she stripped by herself at the Brighton Conference uh, Centre that we played. And then later that year... um, my girlfriend's sister was 16, um, who's absolutely stunning. And Lynn got a few friend colleague, work colleagues of hers to strip at Battersea Park. Um, and of course, we were accused of exploiting them. But in fact, they were proving a point that they were in control and not us. <laughs> a la Hawkwind, I guess. Oh, yeah. State, was it Stacey? Was it? I, I can't, I don't know. I, Pro- I remember that you know, famous for, for one of her, their naked dancers. Yeah. Probably a little too nuanced for the time if you'd done that later. Because <laughs> I remember you... all the shock, outrage, headline, and it's very hard to get your statement through all the noise, isn't it? Yeah. You know? And in fact, I think it was, uh, 
a lot of people didn't <coughs> um, uh, rate our music. Uh, our, our, we were a distraction for the, what we were producing the music, I think, you know. I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier as well about you being a little bit too intelligent at times, a little too musical at times, you know, especially with, with, with Dave and the band yeah. and, uh, and, 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 you know, doing things in three, four, for Christ's sake. You know, I mean, that was, oh, it's uh, the easiest form for me. I, I can write anything in three, four. It's fantastic. I, no, I so, but do you think some of that, some of that image that, that, that you got tarnished with. And I think there was a sense, a lot of that was given to you because, because, you know, you didn't fit into the whole punk ethos and you were too clever for it in a way. But did you think some of that, do you think some of that still stays? Do you think that that's hard to shake off? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's slowly, I mean, far too slowly for my liking. It's, it's been, it's shaking off, uh, especially in the UK. Uh, abroad, I think there's a, a different attitude to the Stranglers, but, um, yeah, it was a bit of a, well, you know, um, in the UK, there's a bit of a suspicion if you're, they like the um, the noble savage thing here in the UK. You know, they like you, if you're a rocker, you're going to be a rocker and not have uh, intellectual pretensions, you know. Abroad, they think that's hard, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but here in the UK, you, you're either an art house or, you know, art band, mm -hmm or aggressive you can't really be the but the two but we proved that you can be well actually uh, this is a, a good place to jump onto your album then you're a man cometh which is brilliant which i know but which again which was which has this actually incredibly prescient now sort of serious political mission statement yeah doesn't it set out well, also also guy it's it's electronica yeah the, you know, way before it was kind of happening. So this is 1978, I think, JJ. And you're, you're, it's, it's, it's this album has all this sort of, has, you know, has definitely got a, a Euro feel to well, it. With all the so, titles, yeah. But, but it's this idea of embracing a strong Europe. And it's, but it's quite funny. All the points you make are, are even more valid. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still, I can't believe that people, um, uh, okay, if you, if you want to divorce, you should have a real reason to divorce. Um, and I still haven't, no one's really, you know, people tell me, um, uh, yeah, we're taking back control. Of what? Yeah, well. Um, but that's another argument. That's a whole, yeah, that's a whole um, I, 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 You know, I've, obviously, I, I was born in um, in London. Actually, I was not many You were born in Notting Hill, weren't you? I said, in, well, yeah, not, St. Proper, Mary Abbott. proper Colin McInnes, the, the blue light. Yeah. Notting Hill. <laughs> well, you know, the immigrants um, came to Notting Hill. There was a lot yeah. of immigration in the early 50s, uh, late 40s and early 50s into Notting Hill. And I was born in St. Mary Abbott's Hospital. Oh, which, right. Which is where um, uh, Jimi Hendrix was. Jimi Hendrix died, died, yeah. Declared, declared dead anyway, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so... And Notting Hill also, uh, conveniently for my folks, was close to the French uh, consulate and embassy. You know, so it's a little French district. Um, if you go to the posh uh, which right. I was going to say, yeah, isn't that, it's down. It's the other side of Notting Hill Gate, isn't it? It's down yeah, in Canada. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I, I was born there, and um, I always wanted to be English. You know, when you're growing up uh, in England at that time, um, the uh, there aren't any very identifiable strangers or foreigners. So having a French French parents made you stand out 
And um, I really didn't want to stand out. Kids uh, can be very cruel, you know. So very early on, I, I, I kind of had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. So I was fighting from very early. Age. I was going to say, do, do you think that might have inspired your the, the, the karate? Of course. <laughs> yeah. <I'm sure. laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm really not a stranger to violence, and um, unfortunately, but uh, that, so I had identity problems and I always believed I thought the idea of uh, a United States of Europe with people all the nations uh, you know the, na the nations of Europe still keep retaining their identities um, I mean look look at Scotland we know who a Scot is we know where Scotland is Scots know that they're Scottish um, so why the need to break it up even more you know yeah, yeah. it's against nature as well because you know you yeah. it's kind of unnatural for islands to be split, you know? Yeah. 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 Just going on to your, we, I'm sure that you and I, we're in agreement. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> what, um, but I need to talk about that album now because it yeah. is, what is interesting about that album, it, your, your, your solo album is kind of what we were going to be doing in two years later. Oh, right. Okay. You know the electronic yeah yeah thing. well yeah and, I, so how was that, well, how did that happen and what did you want well who influenced you i mean there were you, let's face it there were uh, influencers way before that i mean there was the um Kraftwerk and all okay. the uh, and all the uh the german uh bands uh, and Bowie had brought along yeah, yeah. so um i i was i was fascinated by all of that and the new technology and you know where you're from the same generation of musicians roughly that it was it was the transition between um analog and digital you know and then synths synths you know uh, and then they started getting polyphonic and you could start changing sounds quite so it was studios were fascinating at the time you know went from tapes to um, metacells in, in a matter of years a short few years so I loved all that stuff, and uh, I just wanted to make a statement about um, Europe because I couldn't be 100% French, I couldn't be 100% English, I was a European, and that was uh, sufficient to define me at the time, you know. What were you listening to then that was kind of inspiring that? Uh, Kraftwerk. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I guess there was, I did, John Fox was probably active by then, wasn't he? Ultravox, I saw yeah. one of their, first, I think I saw one of their first gigs, which was at the Nashville Rooms. I obviously love Midge, but with John Fox, it was an incredible band. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. brilliant. I, I remember seeing them. I think it was, what do you, what do you call, uh, when you do something for the record companies? Sort of, uh, showcase. Showcase. They were doing a showcase at the Nashville Rooms, and I was there, because it was my kind of local at the time. And that's what Billy Curry sent through a fuzz box. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so everyone was starting to discover synths, and uh, and a few years later, with the eighties, it was you know, synth tastic. Yeah, but you, you 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 know you still poshed up. You got that sound of that sophisticated pop sound later. You had a that your career went rather strangely quiet at one point, late 70s, early 80s. Suddenly, suddenly, you pop up a few years later with this enormous song. Which know. is, yeah, which is, which is actually, because the funny thing about Golden Brown is that, I, I assume that's what we're talking about. Gordon, no, Gordon Brown we're talking about. <laughs> Gordon Brown. 
Yeah, it was it was a brilliant, and, and to write that song about monetary policy was was uh, incredibly brilliant. <laughs> uh, but um, because then you, you would think that, and I remember hearing, it and you think, oh wow, there's this whole new Stranglers. But the album actually, you know, it's actually quite a standout song on the album, isn't it? You're still yeah. the Stranglers yeah. very much, it's, even uh, though that sounds like you know. I mean, it was it was fantastic. It was a proper harpsichord as well, um, and it's just uh, where'd you uh, rent that from? <laughs> Ah, I don't know, but we were at the Morris, Manor. Morris Black, I have one of them. Yeah. At the Manor, at the Manor. <laughs> we were at the Manor, yeah. All right. And, um, and then we, we thought it was a great track. Um, uh, we really believed in it, and the record company didn't. I mean, the record company had written us off. You know, they told us, I think, one meeting, they said, Punk's dead, you wave's dead, and you're gone. And uh, so we insisted. We had, fortunately, we had retained a clause where we could force them to release a single and so they released Golden Brown just before Christmas. And, in, you know, in those days, there was a tsunami of sick releases at Christmas. Yeah, know? yeah. And I think they assumed it would drown in the tsunami, and it just carried on. So when it was became a worldwide hit, they said, oh, can we have another one, please? So we said, fuck off. Gave them a six-minute song in French. <laughs> La Folie. La Folie. But really, I mean, was that... Did you do that yeah. on purpose? Right. Was that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they were, you know, they... And then just as our goodbye, uh, because we had to give them one more single, we gave them a single which they'd rejected only, what, five years before, uh, a song called Strange Little Girl, which we'd done in the in the very early days of The Stranglers. Yeah, because that does sound like real Stranglers Mark One. that song. Yeah. I mean, it's a great yeah. song. But... And they, uh, they'd rejected it, so we gave it to them as a, a parting gift. And then that was a hit. But... but, but <laughs> The music often was extremely. <laughs> the music was often extremely left field, wasn't it, JJ? I mean, you know, I remember you see on being on top of the pops doing that song, Harry. Oh, don't bring Harry, yeah. Don't bring Harry. Don't bring don't Harry. Bring Harry yeah. the most, you know, the completely different feel to anything that you could imagine the Stranglers coming up with. Well, it's, well, and, it's kind of torch song, you know. I mean, torch song, which is your French background. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, I you know. Um, Chanteur. Je, je, uh, chanteur. Je ne regret Harry. And all that. Yeah, I love all that stuff. Yeah. I sort of grew up hearing it. So I suppose it's just my DNA. How do you, um, you know, you spoke a bit about Hugh leaving. And was that a moment of feeling we can't continue anymore? Or did you feel that you were, you were good enough? You were the stranglers and that was, you, you didn't need Hugh anymore. How, how did you all feel? I, um, I thought that was, that was it. Yeah. Um, Jet and Dave, however, thought differently and they talked me around to carrying on. And by then I was starting to write quite a lot more. But when having, having been associated with a band in a similar position, when Hugh left, was he leaving on the assumption that he thought that would be the end of it? He left thinking on the assumption that he would become a, a big star in his own right, I think. But he wasn't worried about you about you carrying on as the Stranglers? I think he assumed that we wouldn't, Yeah, to be honest. Um, so what was the moment where you, where you went, this is the song, this is something we can do, we can carry on? Um, I, I did... Um, do you remember that scene in Blade Runner? When he says... For all the scenes in Blade Runner. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, the, the end, when Rutger Hoyer um, is dying... He says, and it's time to die. He says, I've seen starships. Of that on the Sennheiser Gate. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, all these things will be lost, like uh, tears and rain. Teardrops and rain. Yeah. And I thought that's... I only know Shakespeare, sorry. <laughs> yeah, where you were posh. I only know the Shakespeareos. <laughs> and so uh, I, uh, I did a, an instrumental with, uh, and I sampled that from Blade Runner. 
And when we are, when it came to asking Warners for permission, they wouldn't accord it. So I changed some of the words, and that that track, "Time to Die," is is on ah. the first uh, record we did part, uh, post uh, Hugh. I mean, it wasn't a hit; it wasn't a success, but um, it, it it sort of instigate, it kind of inspired the band to to look elsewhere to move on. You had John Ellis coming, didn't you? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I'm not sure if that was a mistake or not. But John, I, I'd seen, I'd happened to see the Vibrators' very first gig um, at a student sitting in Hornsey, I think, and I thought they're great. A great little pop. I saw, I saw them earlier. Yeah, yeah, I thought they're great little um, uh, sort of punkish, punky, fast, well, fast pop band. Power pop, um, wasn't it? Power pop. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. And John, so I, I kept in touch with John and. Um, he, when I did the Euroman tour, I got him as the guitarist. And um, then I think he was playing for Peter Gabriel for a few years. Um, and he had his ups, his ups and downs. But near the end of Hugh's tenure in the band, uh, Hugh didn't want to play guitar. And he had a really particular way of playing guitar. He wasn't a great guitarist, but so creative, really inventive solos and everything but he wanted to do more singing so um i brought john into the band um to do hugh's guitar parts um and um and then when hugh left uh, john was ready-made guitarist you know you because you've been through a future with paul came in yeah, paul roberts and then finally baz Warren. and really in, in your mind i suppose baz has been with you longer than than hugh you. Yeah, 20, 22 years coming on. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's it, you know it's um, it's been lots of ups and lots of downs, more downs than ups. But since Baz came into the band, we went back. We reverted to a four piece, and I got someone I can actually talk to and bounce off uh, writing my song songwriting wise. So it's been a, an uphill. Um, well, it's been uh, we've been going uphill. Ever like, yeah, yeah, so, we got them. The, yeah. You meant the positively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My English isn't always so good. I mean, uh, what I love is that is your constant ambition to to keep this project going yeah. because you know, especially given that you're the last man standing from the original. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, and it, you're still it, out there doing the breakfast TV sofas, and still, you know. But this is great. This is what you do. It's who you are. It's what you do for a living. They keep they keep me fully occupied, the Stranglers. I mean, people have asked me, uh, would I do another solo thing? And I don't have the time. Stranglers take up all my time. Um, you know, if, 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 in musical terms, um, yeah, don't, don't produce anymore. I don't. I just. It's the Stranglers. And, you know, when you're on a winning streak, which the Stranglers have been now since Baz came to the band, um, it's uh, it's been a, a real joy. You know, you guys, you're both musicians. You, What what a privilege it is to make a living yeah. from what you do. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, yeah. And you have, a, you have a great following as well that are, you know, loyal to you. Yeah, well, I think you, you get the following you deserve. Like it, are there still some Finchley boys? <laughs> Sorry, are there still some Finchley boys? Yeah, I've been to a few funerals in, over the last few years, um, but yeah, there's um, there's still a few. Finch, the, the Finchley boys still turn up, though. They are also yeah, some photographs. They do, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, how do you replace Dave? Well, huh, that's a, that's a fascinating question. The the, the um, 
Dave um, had a disciple. You know, he had he had some some musicians who really wanted to play like him, and who know all his parts. Um, and there was one I actually encountered in the studio twenty years ago, and he was just you know Dave was his god. Um, so for the future, the, the near future, because I, we've got we're contractually obliged to do some gigs. I don't know if they'll come off, but if they are, then we've we'll we'll fulfil those obligations. And I, I really got no idea what will happen after that. I mean, Baz and I are still writing all the time, and so I don't know what what is the vehicle for Baz and my songwriting. Probably the Stranglers. What are the gigs? Where when are you gigging? Well, we're meant to be starting in Belgium in uh, November, then Holland, then Scandinavia, Poland, uh, Germany, France, uh, Hungary, um, uh, Serbia, uh, Italy. Will it happen? I don't know. It's uh, we're yeah. getting closer to that time, and things are still a bit up in the air. You know, with the carnage, Brexit hasn't helped with course, uh, yeah. going through uh, borders. So. I don't know. And then there's a UK tour uh, next year. I'd hope that uh, I'd like to think we could do something like that. But in the UK now, do you have these um, vaccination passports? We don't here. I think they're going to come in. I have to say, I just spent a few days in Paris and I was really impressed by it, to be honest. And I I, I did think it was, it it certainly helped me feel. Well, you know, there was, (laughs) it's it's a real French thing. There was a bit of reticence. Um, At one point during the lockdown, there was a restaurateur in Nice who got busted with about 60 customers in his restaurant. Restaurants weren't supposed to open. And he said, um, c'est mon devoir de désobéir. Uh, when he got carted off, it's my duty to disobey. <laughs> and there very, was, very French. There was, <laughs> yeah, but you know, in, I, I I see a lot of obedience in in France, and they're keeping their numbers low. Well, I like well, what the, there was, a, Mac, there was Macron said it's your it's we don't stay home anymore. You do. <laughs> We're not staying home. For yeah, the, the thing yeah. was, um, there was still quite a, a lot of re- reticence about the vaccinations and uh, and this and that. And huge uh, protests, of course. Yeah, there were big protests, anti-vaxxers. But as soon as Macron said, well, you can't go to a restaurant or uh, a cafe without your vaccine passport, suddenly the figures shot up. <laughs> yeah, um, you can't how- shrug without a vaccine passport. You can't. Uh, and, and also, <laughs> you know, you, t- you take a, a Frenchman away from his food. That's done. <laughs> How's, how's Jet doing? Uh, Jet's uh, falling apart. Um, uh, he has been falling apart for 45 years, actually, all the time I've known him. He's, um, he's fine. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. He, it was his uh, 83rd or 84th birthday. And I said, how, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm falling apart. Um, but, you know, we, we have a bit of dark humour in the band. He, every time someone dies, that you know, a musician dies, he's like, Outlived him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but you know, is he? He doesn't get behind a drum kit anymore. No, and, and you know, to be honest, over the years we've had eight different drummers um, filling in when De- uh, Jet was poorly. He's always had health problems, but one of the most violent men I've ever known. But he's fantastic. Now, I saw a clip of him on Breakfast TV once, and he looked like he was very cold. He was wearing about four coats. <laughs> Yeah, he's big, what a character! What a yeah, character. A big character! Yeah, the good luck with dark matters. Thank you very much. Yeah, nice, to, nice talking to you guys.
No, it was really nice to talk to you, JJ. It was fantastic. And um, may yeah, I ask I one question? I think um, of, of each of you, um, what are you doing these days? I'm I'm basically doing this. I'm doing all bits of bass playing here and there for people, and we're waiting because and um, then waiting to start rehearsing because hopefully Gary and I are going out on tour together. Oh, really, really next year, yeah, with uh, Nick Mason with the Source for the Secrets. Okay, so that's that's answered my question for, from for Gary as well. Well, we do. Well, we only do, part of it. Gary's always busy. We've been doing uh, for about four years now. We play. Uh, early Pink Floyd stuff with Nick Mason. Right. So with Nick and uh, it's called Nick Mason Source Full of Secrets. So it's been doing really well. We had a, a live, yeah, yeah. live album. Been, it's that really, really good fun. What, Sid Barrett type material? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do all that. I, I, had, a, <laughs> I had a solo record out. Right. That, that came out just uh, on Columbia just a, a few weeks ago. Can I? Which I did I did in lockdown. Can I get a chance? Which I'm on. Alan's got it. Signed copies. Great, I can take it to France with me. You can have a rare unsigned one, guy. Yeah, there you go. Well, the majority are signed, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> JJ, thanks for coming Pleasure. on. Yeah, nice, nice talking to you. And uh, thanks for... I know you're musicians, but you've been fucking more professional than a lot of journalists. Oh, thank you very much. We're, we're fans at the same time. Yeah. Yes. All, yeah. all the very best. Nice talk. Well, yeah, really good talk to you. Cheers, JJ. Cheers, mate. That was good. That was that was really was really good. Uh, a very sort of charming rolling chat is and, and like you know an absolute icon for me and any bass player of my generation. So yeah, and you realise actually thinking about it, I never mentioned it to him, but but how influenced someone like Adam Clayton is by yeah absolutely by style absolutely. yeah. And um, anyway, listen, thank you very much for tuning in today and listening. Again, we are hoping that you can leave some nice uh, reviews, etc. So keep listening, keep posting, and thanks to Ben, our producer, and it's good night from him. And it's good night from me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 